0: So we've given this uh, series the uh, the title, Singing the Blues, and uh, I want to encourage you, if you haven't um, read Ash's article, which went out on the newsletter this week, I want to encourage you to. It's just a brilliant article, really excellent article, looking at that issue uh, of the the idea of singing sadness. Uh, One of the points that was made which I thought was really fascinating. He picked up on the idea of music uh, and made the comment that blues music and gospel music, somebody has said, are two sides of the same coin. That was a really fascinating idea, isn't it? That there is a connectedness, that there is a joy on the one hand in the singing of the gospel and there is the sadness on the other hand of the lived reality of the experience of slavery that is where blues music found its roots and yet at the same time we find we find ourselves don't we I want to ask a question why why do we enjoy sad songs why do we do why do we enjoy sad songs it's but we do don't we Uh, I won't ask for a show of hands because it might embarrass some people, but does anybody enjoy country music? Just answer yourself. Country music to me is, my wife's left me, my horse has gone lame, the dog's dead, and my bottle of whiskey is empty. Uh, Any kind of combination of those ideas joined up into a song makes uh, a country music song, but at the same time, it's sadness, isn't it? Uh, And it has an enormous following. One of the greatest... Uh, wordsmiths I think in our current generation who writes passionately from our heart and from her experiences is Adele I think she writes some of the most breathtaking uh, pieces of, of lyrical poetry just amazing ideas coming forward here's, here's one of my favorites when from when we were young let me photograph you in this light in case it is the last time that we might be exactly like we were before we realized we were sad of getting old. Wow, that's kind of powerful, isn't it? There is something amazingly powerful about singing sadness. It's our experience as human beings. It's part of what we are. And yet, at the same time, we live in almost an almost dislocated emotion. On the one hand, we experience sadness and suffering. And yet, on the saint, at the same time, we know that in some way it's not right. And yet it should be right, shouldn't it, in one sense? if the whole of human history tells us that suffering is just part of the human experience. Why do we continually live with this idea that it shouldn't be like this? I think that's one of the things that we need to consider as we take a journey over these next few weeks in this idea of singing the blues. We are absolutely committed as as humanity to the eradication of suffering on one sense. In fact, the fifth largest organization in the whole world The National Health Service has at its very core the eradication of suffering. And yet, tragically, and and tearing at our hearts over these past weeks, we've seen the very quandary of that desire with the reality of loss that we've seen in little Charlie Gard. I I don't know about you, I pray for his parents that something of the peace of God might might help them at this tragic time. It is so powerfully written into our experience, this, this dilemma of the two. We want one, and yet we experience the other. One of the things that I want to say right at the beginning is that the Christian faith does not ignore the issue of suffering. Not at all. In fact, more than that, it recognizes, it embraces, it sees this issue of suffering as the central, one of the central experiences of our human existence. And that's why I think it's important for us to spend some time looking at songs. I mentioned it last week when we used the term songs of, Psalms of Lament. That could mean something technical in terms of specific psalms which were written when God's people were in exile. We will look at some of those, but generally speaking, what we will be looking at is psalms where lament is one of those key phrases, one of those key themes. So the first thing that I want to recognize when we look at this particular psalm, Psalm 22, I want to step back for a minute before we think about it and just recognize a few things. Psalm 22 is in the Bible. That is just one of the most straightforward, simplistic phrases you could ever imagine, isn't it? But Psalm 22 is in the Bible. The Bible itself, from beginning to end, has this continuous recognition. So I want to start by recognizing this psalm and recognizing the rest of the Bible that there is biblical recognition to the issue of suffering. Right from the beginning, Genesis, all of the tragedies that take part in the early chapters, Exodus, trials and difficulties, Judges, Kings, Chronicles, moments where there is ebb and flow of of joy and yet tragedy and suffering and hardship. The prophets with, with terrible behaviors and terrible judgments and terrible suffering. The life of Jesus. The acts of the apostles. Oppositions and progress, both in the same book. The letters which are, are filled with the challenges of life together in a world which is a, a, a opposed to the message, the, the message of Jesus. And then we come to the final book of the Bible where we see Revelation. And we see this, this picture, this word picture of tremendous suffering and yet at the same time joy. We can't get away from the, the idea that the Bible recognizes suffering that is a really important thing to say right up at front because sometimes we are we are led to believe that the idea of the christian faith means that we shouldn't have suffering that somehow everything should be great and fine and joyful uh, and lovely and and flossy i would love to take us if we feel that and sit down next to the apostle paul in a roman prison when he has just been in the first of his trials, uh, and he says this in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, verse 16, at my defense, at his legal defense, no one came to support me, but everyone deserted me. A little bit later on from that very statement, he is finally slaughtered by the Roman authorities. That, that's reality. That's the experience. Uh, and the message of the gospel, the message of the good news of Jesus is written out with that as its staging for the whole of the drama. So I want to encourage you, right at the, this point in time, sometimes we almost have a sense of guilt that we feel this. <laughs> Don't feel like that. Recognize that that's where the Bible is written. The good news is written on the stage of the world's suffering, trials, and difficulties. It is experienced by the greatest of God's servants and the greatest servant in Jesus. So the Bible recognizes suffering. Let's come, shall we then, Uh, to Psalm 22, because the second thing I want to see is that this is spiritual reflection on the issue of suffering. Now, those of you who are looking at this thinking, where is he he going? (laughs) Because the first verse, if you're used to the Bible, that takes you somewhere, doesn't it? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just for a minute, please, leave the 21st century let's take our like, let's take ourselves back and let's inhabit the time uh, before the exile into babylon when this song when this psalm was being sung by god's people let's remind ourselves that this song was sung by god's people it was part of the worship of God's people. It starts with this opening uh, phrase, um, a tune to the tune, Doe of the Morning. There's a little bit of debate and discussion whether it's the tune that it's stating right up front or whether it's the instrument that is suggested. Really, to some extent, it doesn't matter, does it? If it's the tune or if it's the instrument, what it's saying is... You people of God, sing this song. Sing this song. This song of sadness. This song of a reflection on the reality God is saying to his people I want you to sing the blues. I want you to sing the blues. I want you to sing this experience. There is some debate uh, about the foundation of it, it's called the Psalm of David, whether it was penned by David, whether it was a reflection on David's life, we know that it was also sung at the fast of Esther, so there's a suggestion it might have been a reflection on the fasting time. Remembering the time of the life of Esther and the trials and the difficulties of God's people. But just look at how it opens up. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. There is something about the fears of the night, isn't there? The fears of the night are multiplied a hundredfold compared to the fears of the day. Things that you know that you can get over during the day are impossible to get over in the quiet of the night. They, They just carry us away somewhere, don't they? Here, God's people are expressing by the encouragement of God to sing the reality of their experience. Sing the reality of your experience before God. That is incredibly important for us to understand. If you are maybe thinking about this idea of the Christian faith, I really want to encourage you, God calls you, God engages with you in the reality of where you are. He doesn't say it's got to be lovely before we join hands together. He says, come and sing the reality of your life's experience. Reflect on the reality of your life's experience. Sing it before me. What is God encouraging? He's encouraging us to to take the masks off before him. We put up some great masks, don't we? How are you? I'm really good. I'm really good. Are you? Not not many of us are prepared to ask that second question. Are you really? Because we, we put up this front I think it's to protect ourselves. I think sometimes it's to protect others because getting down into that nitty-gritty of the reality of the experience of life is a tough thing to do. But God says, no, please. Come and sing the reality before me. So how is this working then? Whether it's a song of David, whether it's a song of Esther, what we see is it is the penned experience of an individual. And then all of God's people are told to sing that experience as though it is your experience as well. Because it is, isn't it? We share together. We come together and we sing the reality. You might have come here this afternoon and you might be absolutely bubbling and buzzing. Spiritually speaking as well, maybe. You might be. Uh, you might you might have turned up at the temple pre-exile with a whole load of other Jews and you might have felt exactly the same way. And then whoever, I don't know how it worked in the temple, <laughs> but somehow somebody would have stood up and, and the band would have struck up. And the, the, there would have been a band with cymbals and lyres and tambourines and all the rest of it. And uh, we're going to sing to the Doe of the morning... And it wouldn't be 22 up on the screen. It would be something that was this psalm. And collectively, we are called to sing together that experience. We are called to reflect together whether we feel it or whether we don't feel it. It's an important thing for us to see there. That's what gathering together... We've been looking at worship over these past few weeks, haven't we? It is hugely encouraging for somebody to share in our challenges. It's what we do when we sing together in this way. And there's a reality as well which is doubts and fears before God. My God... My God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me? So far from my cries of anguish? That sounds like doubt. I would love to be able to stand here and say, Do you know what? My Christian experience since I became a believer in Jesus, I've never had doubts, I've never had fears. I'd love to be able to say that but it would be a complete lie <clears throat> because the reality is I have had doubts and I continue to have doubts and I continue to have fears and this psalm says to me I should not be scared to bring them before the God who I love I shouldn't somehow think if I, if I kind of if I reveal my cards here and God gets to know that I'm doubting him a little bit somehow he's going to be really angry with me and, and, uh, and knock me for six and, and, and our relationship's going to be over. He's saying, no, come and sing the reality of your experiences, your doubts and your fears. Sing it. It is spiritual reflection. Thirdly, we see that it is emotional restoration. The Bible connects... Our suffering our life of and experience of is of suffering with faith in God it doesn't say that they're opposed it says that they're connected look at how it works firstly we talk about uh, our confidence in the past truth of God verse 1 and 2 my God my God why have you forsaken me Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. I think that you're not there, and then we see, yet, you're enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. That's an amazing picture. It, it points to our reality. It points to this spiritual ebbing and flowing, the highs and lows. We, we feel this and then we reflect on that. If you look at verse 3 to 5, the way it describes God's people in the past, it is an enormous gloss of the reality speaks about the way our ancestors trusted you. If you look in the detail of it, you see that there was loads of times when their ancestors didn't trust God. They weren't faithful. They weren't trusting in Him. They were fearful, and yet what we see is even in spite of that, those little glimmers of trust, God says, I see that as trust. And above all else, I'm the one who's faithful. That's amazing, isn't it? Is that our experience? Because when we look back, when we see how God has had His hand on us over the years, we can know that He's never left us, even though we say in a moment that He's never left us. Do you see how that's working? I'm saying that you've left me. But I know that you haven't. It's it's kind of it's almost that battle, that mental battle. You can almost imagine that going through in a conversation in the psalmist's mind in the night. I feel this, you're so far from me, but I know that you're the God in heaven. I know that you've never lost left in the past. What about who I am? My identity. Look at verse six. I am a worm, not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Before Before we jump too far ahead, let's remember that this is the experience of the one who penned this psalm. I feel as though my faith in God is something to be ridiculed. I am believing in something that nobody can see and because of that, they say, if you want to trust in that God, get on with it, pal. Let Him save you. Don't come to me if you're going to put your trust somewhere else. Who am I? I feel the lowest of the low. And then we see the, the swing of the pendulum in the other direction. Yet, you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. <laughs> the implication, the idea there is that Right from the very beginning, the psalmist has known that God has had His hand on him. He's been God's person throughout his life. And you might say, well, that's not me. (laughs) But if you're trusting in God today, let me encourage you with this thought. Every little twist and turn of your life, every bend in the road, every tragedy, every joy, every moment has been shaped by God to bring you to faith in Him. He essentially has had you from your mother's womb. There's no difference. He's had you from the very beginning. That's our experience. That is our identity. Even when we feel ridiculed, Even when we feel this faith in God is a waste of time, that is who we are. Eleven to twenty-one. We won't look at all of it, but it's it's pleas and oppression, different pictures of oppression and pleas for help. I love the reality of this psalm that the psalmist is just pouring out expressions. There is no fear you ever have a conversation where somebody says how are you and you say well, well not great and, and you see the response and you think well I, I won't I won't tell them anymore <laughs> that that's enough uh, I, I won't go on to the the reality of the experience but the psalmist doesn't hold back from God the psalmist just pours it all out I feel this I'm surrounded by dogs I'm fearful of being trampled by great bulls. All of this amazing picture language. There is no holding back. But there is a turning point. And the turning point is verse 22. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord... Praise Him. Do you see that turning point? He says, I'll declare the Lord. That's, I'll declare your name. I'll praise your name. That's the vertical moment. And then the moment speaks out to you and says, now you praise Him with me as well. Come and let's praise this God. In spite of all that I've said, I'll still carry on praising. That's the idea that's in this psalm. There is emotional restoration that comes through the reality of talking about the experience but not just pouring out the grief actually pouring out where the hope is as well do you see that emotional uh, restoration that is taking place it's an emotional restoration it's a spiritual restoration that we see modeled before us that we can embrace It's an embracing of the reality of pouring out before God the truth of our experience whilst at the same time saying, but I will still trust in you. I will still praise you. I still believe that you will deliver. Even when I feel as though I don't believe that you'll deliver, I'll still say that I believe that you'll deliver because that is the part of restoration that this this framework I would go as far as calling it spiritual therapeutic intervention. It is God saying, pour it all out. But don't just pour out the bad bits. Remind yourself of the truths as well. If we do that, we are into that journey of spiritual restoration. We are beginning to, to claim. Claim in our minds. Claim in our words The promises that God has made, whether we feel them at the moment or not. That's the process that is taking place. That is why it is emotional restoration that we see. But we're we're not sat in pre-exile Judaism, are we? (laughs) We've said that this is a messianic psalm. So, having held on to the reins for ages, reminding us that this is a song that God's people sang, now let's look at what brings a power to it for today that is breathtaking. It is the song that reflects beforehand, or rather than reflects, it creates, if you like, a a smoky image, an impenetrable at this moment image that becomes clear in Jesus, an image which becomes clear. Our hope, therefore, is in, we've, we've seen that we've got biblical recognition, we've got spiritual reflection, we've got emotional restoration, now we see divine resolution. Resolution. What does God do? Well, Psalm 22 verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? <laughs> if, if, you, if you know your Bible, you know that that is one of the most powerful phrases that is declared by the Lord Jesus on the cross as He is dying. Matthew chapter 30, 27 and verse 46, it says this, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, Jesus spoke Aramaic, but Jesus decided to declare psalm 22 in Aramaic not in Hebrew <laughs> it's as though the lord jesus at the point where he is fulfilling the psalm is still enticing us you've got to really see this i'm not i'm not going to i'm not just going to declare the hebrew words of psalm 22, I'm going to speak the reality. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He speaks it in the tongue that he spoke every day. Why? Because Jesus is not all about fulfilling Psalm 22, although he is. (laughs) He is all about immersing himself in the reality of that experience. Do you see that? This isn't a simple three card trick that God pulls off to say ta-da you see who I am this is about God saying I will immerse myself in the reality of your suffering the suffering that you have experienced that you declare I will allow it to wash over me when you have sung in the past my god why have you forsaken me i am the one who can really sing my god why have you forsaken me i know what it is i know what the reality that is that breathtakingly good news that the god who we worship is not some distant ideal <laughs> but he is a god in divine resolution has committed himself to experiencing the reality of this world. He inhabits the suffering of his people. He says, I am with you. I am there. There has been all sorts of ink that has been spilt on what does it mean, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At least what it means is this. It's Jesus saying, I'm with my people. I am with my people. I am with your suffering. I am with that experience. I know what it is. I am there. All who see me, verse 7, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Matthew chapter 27 verse 39. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. For Matthew, uh, Psalm 28 verse 8. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Matthew chapter 27 verse 43. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I'm the Son of God. Here's a question. They're all of God's people who are doing that. That's the actions of God's people, including the religious leaders. Let me ask you a question. Do you think on that fateful day when Jesus was nailed to a cross that they got together and said, Oh, guys, we've got to remember that we need to fulfill Psalm 22 today. So, so, this group over here, I want you to shake your heads at him and insult him. And this group over here, I want you to say, he's trusting in God, let God save him. Of course not. Of course not. God's people didn't decide to do that on that day. They didn't decide it's really important for the, for the fulfillment of our faith that we fulfill the promises. What does that say about suffering? What does it say when the Roman soldiers fulfill precisely what we see in Psalm 22? Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet, verse 16. Gentile, uh, Jewish terminology, as we see affirmed by Jesus, Jewish terminology for Gentiles was dogs. Dogs surround me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Crude terminology for Gentiles is fulfilled in the Romans who nailed Jesus to a cross and pierced his hands and his feet. And the Roman soldiers, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Psalm 22 verse 18, Matthew 27:35. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. If the Jews didn't plan to fulfill what they'd been singing for hundreds of years, the Romans didn't even know what they'd been singing for hundreds of years. Oh, by the way, guys, you know when you threw that dice, you fulfilled Psalm 22. Really appreciate that. Otherwise, the whole of our case for God would have fallen apart. Of course not. What is going on in this suffering? Here's the reality. Here's the hope that brings hope to our suffering as well. God is moving and shaping and has his hand on every element of this world's existence so that his purposes are fulfilled for the good of his people. That is hope in suffering. It's that God hasn't left far from it. Far from it. David or Astor or whoever had to experience what they experienced for this psalm to be written in the first place, for God's people to start to sing it so that Jesus delivers it. Because that's for the good of His people. The whole of the world in some mysterious way which is beyond my understanding is in the hands of God allowing and shaping and moving in a way which fulfills salvation, saving. Because this is all about divine resolution, to be with His people. And so we see finally, the outcome of this is people redemption. Let me read you a few verses from Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 10 to 12 says this, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom, everything exists. I've just said, everything that happened to cause the psalm to be written, to cause the people to sing it, to cause Jesus to be mocked on the cross and His garments bartered for, In a game of dice, it's fulfilled in Hebrews chapter 2, for whom and through whom everything exists. It was fitting that God should make the pioneer of that salvation perfect through what he suffered. Jesus engages in that very suffering, so that that perfect outcome of salvation would be achieved. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. We're of the same family because we kind of get, we get drawn together into this one element of suffering in an amazing way which says we are, we are related now. We are together. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Jesus is not ashamed to call you or me brother and sister. Even when we come and we sing to Him words that say it's tough. Words that say I'm suffering. Look at how the psalm ends. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly I will praise you, it says earlier on, and then it fulfills the psalm in verse 31. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring, his pe- declaring to a people yet unborn. That's what's going on now. We're declaring now the righteousness of Jesus to a people who weren't born when this psalm was sung by God's people hundreds of years before Jesus. What are we declaring? He has done it. final word that Jesus cried on the cross, tatalasti. It's interpreted in some ways, it is finished. Another way that you could interpret it, it is done. That's another idea of this very phrase. We know that because we've seen archaeological evidence that Tatalasti is written at the end of a a series of payments. (laughs) It's ended. It's done. As we start this series, let's just remind ourselves that the Savior who we love It's the Savior who has redeemed us, not by being somehow distant and outside of the reality of human suffering, but by immersing Himself in human suffering, but then joyfully defeating it.